0: Morning, everybody. I love the way the Spirit works. Charlie basically just preached my entire sermon in that prayer, uh, which is awesome. Um, Yeah, really excited. I hope you had a great Christmas, and let me welcome you to 2023. It's here, whether we're ready for it or not, right? Uh, I'm going to begin by praying for us this morning. Um, You can never pray too much. And I'm going to pray for you, and I would ask that as I pray for you, you would do the same for me. So let's pray together. God, we are grateful to be here. We are blessed to sit at the feet of your word and learn. God, I pray that you would prepare our hearts, that you would give our attention a spiritual enhancing, and that we would just be open to what you have for us this morning. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a couple of months ago, at the end of the summer, David preached to us from the book of Acts. Now, the, the book of Acts is a wonderful, wonderful book, and in chapter 2, what we start to see is the, the early church begins to grow and expand, and we sort of track its, its movement throughout its history. And as David preached that sermon, what he did for us was he gave us a clear and really just wonderfully put picture of what the kingdom of God looks like. And he also left us with a church uh, with a question at the end. Now I wasn't here, I was just a few weeks behind, but I've gone back and I've listened to it multiple times. And the question that David left us as a church was this: What would it look like if each of us committed to take one step towards pursuing this type of biblical community? And so this morning, what I'd love to do is I'd love to revisit that question. And I'd love to revisit that picture of what an authentic biblical community looks like, what it sounds like, and what it feels like. So we're going to be back in Acts 2 this morning. We're going to be reading Acts 2, 42 through 47. So if you would, and if you're able, stand with me for the reading of God's word. The scripture says this, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship to the breaking of bread into prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple, and they broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. I'm going to try one thing new this morning. Before you sit down, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord, and you say, thanks be to God. So we'll try it out. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Crushed it. You guys can take a seat. In 2016, streaming giant Netflix released a show called Stranger Things, If you haven't heard of the show, I'd be a little surprised, only because since its release, it's become one of the most celebrated and award-winning shows of all time. It is a huge, huge fan favorite in our streaming world today. And my family is a huge fan of the show. I will candidly admit that we are always waiting uh, with our our, our popcorn out, our remotes on for the new season or whatever it is to come out. You have one season left if you want to catch up, but that's, that's completely between you and the Lord. Uh, but I'm so fascinated by the show that I, I was doing some research into how this show has impacted Netflix's numbers. And I came across a really fascinating article. I'd love to share some, some insights from it with you this morning. Since 2016, when it, was, when it was released, viewers on Netflix have logged over 1 billion hours watching Stranger Things alone. That's a billion with a B. In 2019, the third season of Stranger Things was, was released on July 4th. And you would think July 4th people are out and about. They're with friends, they're with family, they don't have time for television shows. On July 4th, 2019, 40.7 million households tuned in to watch the release of Stranger Things season three. And within four days after July 4th, 20 million households had finished the entire season. And so when I read these numbers, I was like, wow, you know, we watch a lot of TV nowadays, but even for us, this is bad. Like this is really bad. And as I was peering into these numbers and even trying to think about why I love the show, if I was really taken aback. If, if you're not familiar with the show, the basic premise is this. It follows a small group of friends who, for all intents and purposes, are, are, are losers. They don't really have a lot of social interaction outside of their basement. They, they, are, they don't really go out. They don't do anything outside. They stay in their basement. They play video games. They play board games. And they just make jokes and have fun. But as the story moves on, you know, one of the characters is mysteriously abducted, and there's all these big drama, you know, really tense moments, you're at the edge of your seat, and what, this, what the characters don't realize is that a bridge has been built from their reality of their small town and a parallel reality, and this parallel reality is characterized by all things bad, right? It's icky, it's sticky, it's, it's got all the things that go bump in the night running around it. You do not want to find yourself in this parallel reality, and as the show goes on, it eventually gives this reality a name, and it's called the Upside Down. The Upside Down is quite literally just an upside-down replica of our reality. Buildings are in the same place. Houses are in the same place. They're just covered with really gross things. But what I love about this show, and honestly a lot of other shows like it, is the way that it parallels with the kingdom of God. We see in the book of Acts, and in this passage in particular, a church that is barely a few weeks old. They're living in the midst of one of the largest empires in human history, and yet they're living in such a way that they completely flip the moral and the social ethic of their world upside down. Instead of war, there is a devotion to peace. Instead of isolation, there is a devotion to community. And instead of a quest for personal status, there is a devotion to humility. We also see that this small, like-minded group of people were living in such a way that it was incredibly attractive to the world around them. Right? This, this passage is telling us that their numbers are growing day by day by day. Some translations will even throw in that they're growing by the thousands. So what makes this group of people so special? The Acts 29 Network is a church planting organization. They plant churches both domestically and internationally. If you're not familiar with them, I encourage you to go look them up, learn what they're about. They have a sort of working definition for the kingdom of God that I think is really helpful for us this morning, and I think it's really helpful for us here in East Nashville. It's a very holistic definition, and we're going to use it this morning as a framework to work our way through what the kingdom of God looks, sounds, and feels like. So their definition for the kingdom reads like this. The kingdom of God is where the Father's rule is exercised through the Son by the power of the Spirit so that it is willingly obeyed, gloriously displayed, and happily enjoyed among His people. I'm going to read it one more time. The kingdom of God is where the Father's rule is exercised through the Son by the power of the Spirit so that it is willingly obeyed, gloriously displayed, and happily enjoyed among His people. Now, those three pillars at the end, willingly obeyed, gloriously displayed, and happily enjoyed, those are going to be our framework for this morning. We're going to work through each of those bit by bit. But notice the order of those three is on purpose. Notice that it doesn't begin with happily enjoyed. It begins with willingly obeyed, and this is important for us to say out loud because it's important for us to realize that following Jesus does not naturally begin with believers being filled with joy from sunup to sundown. If you've walked with Jesus for any amount of time, you know that there are days where it is far more difficult to be joyful, and it's far easier to walk in obedience. I think of my own children in this in this rite. I assure you that as my children were born into the family of beard, they just they did not come out naturally enjoying everything we asked them to do. Right? There is a there still is a process of learning willful obedience as they are taught the values and the identity markers that we've chosen as a family to uphold. And so as they learn to obey those things, they eventually, Lord willing, will begin to enjoy them. But it's natural for us. Okay, it's natural for us within our process of spiritual growth to learn obedience first. And as we learn obedience, we then lead to displaying the glory of God. And as we display that glory, we then experience the joy that goes above and beyond our circumstances. And I really don't think that we can get this twisted. I think it's important to know this. Because if we approach our life with Jesus expecting sunshine and rainbows, I think we're going to be really disappointed. But if we can begin by learning to walk in obedience, and we can learn to strengthen our faith in the words of God, then our faith in God is dependent upon his words and not the way in which we think our life is meant to turn out. I think this is really important for us today, especially considering the lies that many of us have either been told or are being told, that following Jesus is meant to lead us to a life of personal comfort and happiness. Hear me say this, friends. The kingdom of God is not about our own personal comfort, and it's not about our own personal happiness. The thou shalts and the thou shalt nots, right? We're familiar with those. They're for your good, and they're for his glory, but they sure don't lead to a life of smooth sailing and calm seas. C.S. Lewis, great writer, theologian, thinker of his time, spoke to this idea in in a way that I think is really helpful. I, I discovered it as I was doing some research and listening to some other sermons. But C.S. Lewis says this. He says, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew that a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you really comfortable, I certainly wouldn't recommend Christianity. Now, now I just think that is incredibly remarkable. Remarkable. Okay, here's a man who's considered one of the greatest thinkers of his time, and he's saying, hey, if it's happiness I'm after, a bottle of pork can do that for me. And for that matter, you can sub out port with any of the other things that we're told are gonna lead us to happiness, right? Sex, financial status, climbing a social ladder, climbing a ladder at work, or on the flip side of that coin, things that are in and of themselves good, but we love in a way that's not good for us. Things like our marriages, Things like our kids, I, I struggle with that one. Things like travel, ministry. Many of these things are good gifts from a good father, but when we look to them for ultimate joy and ultimate fulfillment, I think we're gonna we're, we're starting down a really dark and dangerous road. Think about how different this is from our culture's perception of happiness. For that matter, think about how different this is from many of our current Christian circles and their definition our prescription of happiness? If we're beginning to look to things, and we're looking at these offices, these good things that God's given us, if we're looking at them for our ultimate joy and our ultimate fulfillment, then are we really surprised by the rampant increase in things like depression and anxiety and moral failures and addiction that is sweeping the world around us? day by day, week by week, moment by moment, we're being told, hey, if you just give in to that particular desire, if you just search yourself and whatever comes to the top, if you just latch on to that, well, that's your ticket to happiness. That's where you'll find your worth. That's where you'll find your meaning. And our, our, our experiences are telling us something different. Our experiences and our circumstances are telling us, hey, these things that we're, we're trying, they're not quite doing the trick. So we move from one option to the next and we convince ourselves that if we just work a little harder or we just search a little further, then we'll find the missing piece. Friends, the kingdom of God is not about working or earning your way towards anything, let alone personal comfort and happiness. Take this passage for example. Imagine Joe Schmo walking down the streets of Jerusalem, right? Hey, you need a house? Well, I got a house. Take mine. I'll sleep on the street for a week. That sounds great. That's good for Joe, but that doesn't necessarily sound very comfortable for Joe. Where the kingdom of God is defined by self sacrifice, a devotion to lay down our lives for others, it flourishes. Where the kingdom of God is defined by the personal pursuit of comfort or personal happiness, it dies. That's why this early church, again, it's just a few weeks old, was so attractive the world around them they had a message hope redemption they preached it and they lived it out it met right here in life and in practice and as I look around the world today what I see and what really bothers me is so many Christian circles in particular who are so preoccupied with orthodox beliefs which again are good things they're so preoccupied with them that they completely throw aside orthodox practices And when we do that, it slowly begins to destroy us from the inside out. It's killing us inside the church walls and it's killing our witness outside the church walls. There's nothing attractive about that. That's what made this church so special. But the common theme among all these these hard things that we've talked about, right? We've talked about a lot of hard things over the last few months. We've talked about lament, suffering, Hope, peace in the midst of darkness and how we, how we find that. Those are not necessarily joyful and triumphant topics, but they're real. And the common theme that I feel like I've seen as I've reflected among them is that comfort, at least comfort by the world's definition, is not central in the economy of the kingdom of God. You hear me? It has a place. There's a time and a place for everything. If you're in a season of comfort right now, relish it. Praise the Lord. Just know this. Don't expect it to be foundational to your life as a follower of Jesus. I believe that comfort and and the the all-out pursuit of it is a pit of despair that is hell-bent on leaving you starving and desperate on the side of the road in the wake of its inability to satisfy. Being a part of God's kingdom begins with learning obedience to the word of God alongside other believers and living in such a way that the glory of those words is on display for the world to see. So, how do we display this glory? Within the context of church history, this early church in particular was distinct in a variety of ways, particularly in the ways that it rejected the use of force, it rejected withdrawal from the world around it, and it extended an invitation to the outright rejected and despised within society look with me if you will at the beginning of chapter 2 at this moment in chapter 2 we are at a point in church history called Pentecost and if you're not familiar Pentecost is just the moment in church history when the spirit of God as promised fell on the believers and the church began to explode around the world. We're going to look in chapter 2 at verses 9 through 13. This is simply a list describing who was present at the moment of Peter's sort of infamous sermon at this time. The scriptures say this, starting in verse 9 of chapter 2. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia, in Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus in Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. They were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But some sneered and said, they are filled with new wine. Now, it's important to note here that, while this is also a list of regions of the world whose names we all struggle to pronounce, that's very true, this is an actual list of real people groups. And these people groups are ones who are particularly despised among society. They're not great people. That's not just my personal opinion. If you go dig through their writings, they're self-attested. Okay, they're going to say, we've got some vices, all right? We lie, we steal, we cheat, we kill, we destroy. Maybe we're not that great people after all. And what you don't see, though, in Peter's sermon is an asterisk. You don't see him saying, hey, Cretans, Arabs, can you guys scoot out of the way? I'm, I'm trying to speak to the Jews that are behind you. You don't see that. What you do see Peter say is this in verse 14. Peter says this in verse 14. Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice, and proclaimed to them, fellow Jews, here's the important part, and all you residents of Jerusalem, let me explain this to you and pay attention to my words. The message of the kingdom of God is one that brings good news to the poor, hope for the sinner." and an invitation to the outright rejected and despised. There is no other qualification in Peter's message other than Jesus. It's not Jesus and circumcision. It's not Jesus and a certain social status. It's not Jesus and a put-together moral life. It's just Jesus. If you've heard David Hanna talk about this, he says it really well when he says, as soon as you move past the and, you've reached a point of heresy. There is no and. It's just Jesus. That's not scandalous enough for you. This early church was also distinct in the way that it stood in contrast to two relevant ideologies of its time. The first was that of the zealots. And for the zealots, when they got their heads together, they said, hey, we're going to bring about the kingdom of God through force. That's how we're going to play our part. So for the zealots, it's not our way or the highway. It's our way or you're dead. There's no other option. And yet we see Jesus time and time again speak into this and say, that's not how the kingdom of God is going to come about. It's the meek will inherit the earth, not the ones with the biggest swords. Look at the Garden of Gethsemane. In the moment when Jesus is being arrested, being about to be led to his trial and eventual murder, Peter, his most important disciple, freaks out. What's he do? He chops off a dude's ear. You don't see Jesus say, Peter! nice shot, bro. You don't see Jesus, hey, take off these hands, we'll loose these chains, we'll hit the road. You don't see Jesus say that, but what you do see Jesus say is, Peter, stop. This is not how we're going to do this thing. And you see Jesus move towards this man and restore that to him, which was taken by force. The second ideology this kingdom stands against is the Essenes. Now, unlike the Zealots, the Essenes, they're not about force, But as they put their heads together and they said, hey, how do we play our part in bringing the kingdom forward? Basically, they looked around and they said, the world, it's no good, right? So you see that desert out there? We're gonna move way out there. We're gonna build our villages, build our homes. We're gonna get get as far away from them as we possibly can. That's not this kingdom either. This kingdom has no place for withdrawal. The church is in but not of The city, the church lives within the city walls, but they live by a different ethic. This kingdom is meant to be a city on a hill, shining for the world to see, calling them to a better way of living. For me, I've I've always struggled with the sort of ordinary mundane things about life. I've always been a dreamer since I was a young man. It's why stories like Stranger Things, Lord of the Rings, whatever sort of megadrama you, you have, it really draws me in. It captivates me. And as I've reflected on this idea, I've, I've felt the Lord give me a particular burden that I, that I feel like I want to share with you this morning, and that's this. Friends, don't miss the glory that is to be found in the ordinary. God uses ordinary things like our work, like our friendships, like the way that we have fun with one another. He uses ordinary things to bring about non-ordinary means, our sanctification, Right? Our conforming of our hearts and minds into the image of Jesus, our righteousness, our subscription to the kingdom ethic, he brings those about. Those are not normal things. But he uses ordinary things to do so. The most significant shaping that's going to happen in your life is going to happen along the spiritual rhythms and practices that you put in place now. And it's going to happen over the decades and decades that you engage in those practices. But it's going to happen so slow, you're not going to realize that it's happening. It is a slow, slow burn, friends. Now, there's, there's going to be moments of breakthrough. There will be miracles. This is the kingdom of God. It would be foolish for us to say there won't be. But don't lose sight of the impact that God makes on our daily, ordinary lives. It's through our daily lives that the glory of God's kingdom is put on display to all who are lost and who are searching for hope. As we learn to willingly obey Jesus, we begin to display the glory of God, and we then begin to enjoy the richness and the satisfaction that only the kingdom of God can offer us. So how do we enjoy this kingdom? I think that if we today in East Nashville or wherever you're at this morning are going to embody this kingdom... Then we need to cultivate things in our life which are going to lead us into God's presence. Two things that I think can help here. The first one is this. We've got to find our own spiritual rhythms as individuals, as family units, whatever that might look like for you. We've got to find our spiritual rhythms. We've got to lean into them and allow God to do his work in the small and seemingly insignificant moments. We've got to take an honest look in the mirror and we've got to ask ourselves some questions we've got to ask ourselves, hey, what what are we doing to remind ourselves of truth? What are we doing to remind ourselves of all the things God has done in our lives and in the lives of people around us? We've got to ask ourselves, and this one was a tough one for me, we've got to ask ourselves if our citizenship in God's kingdom and the many, many things that come with that is dictating the way that we live or is the way that we want to live dictating our involvement in God's kingdom? This is where the, the, the typical Christian-y, church phrase, quiet time, would come into play as you're talking about spiritual rhythms. Now, quiet time is uh, not a very favorable phrase, especially by myself, because it doesn't sound very inviting, right? There's nothing pleasant about the idea of quiet time. Quiet time is something that I would say to my son, when I say, hey, buddy, I notice you're having a hard time listening to anything and everything, that mom and dad are saying today. So why don't, we, why don't we go to your room, we'll have some quiet time, we'll reset. Or hey, buddy, I, I just noticed, you know, you chased your brother down the hall with a screwdriver. That's a true story. Uh, we don't do that in this, in this family. So let's go to your room, let's have some quiet time, we'll, we'll try again. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound very inviting. And yet Christian subculture has created this picture in our minds of quiet time. You know, it's got to be in the morning. It can't be anytime past 730. It's got to be at a table, maybe in a closet, away from people. You got to have coffee. No other beverage is an option, right? You've got to be at your table. You got to have your Bible open. You've got to have the the most complex Bible reading plan possible. And you've got to check that day's boxes. And if you do that, you're ready to take on the day. Oh, but if you don't do that, well, you might as well stay home. That's the picture that we've been given. And I think it's valuable and necessary for us to fight for that and take it back. Because quiet time is not about checking spiritual checkboxes. Quiet time is about stilling our hearts and our minds at the feet of Jesus and allowing him to speak truth and value into our lives. And if we don't do this, right, if we get caught up in the hustle and bustle of our everyday mornings, which he may say this, it's understandable. Give yourself a little grace in that. But if we continually give ourselves over to the hustle and bustle of our life, how then can we expect to walk out our door any given morning and face what that day has to throw at us? Because the reality is, is if we stopped to share the burdens that each of us are carrying into this room this morning, it would not take very long before we realized how heavy life really is. Life is heavy and it's hard. And if we don't fight to pause and allow Jesus to speak truth and value into our lives, then rest assured you will go look for truth and value somewhere else. And it will not give you what you want, and it will not give you what you need. The second thing that I think we can do alongside cultivating these spiritual practices is we need to work, and I mean work. remind our hearts in the deep 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 caverns of its being that god is not somehow disappointed in us right many of us say this we walk around we use phrases like the gospel or hey no guilt no shame here i lost those chains i left them at the foot of the cross that's a real thing but we say those things and we walk around and we act and we think in very different ways We have to work to remind ourselves that God is shaping us. He's shaping you in the midst of his love. God's not standing outside the door saying, hey, as soon as you get that particular area together, you can come on in. That's not how this works. God is standing at the door saying, here's my invitation, take it, come in, I'll help you get it together. That is what sanctification is. And yet many of us, fall prey to the busyness of life, whatever it might be, and we go out our door any given morning and we allow the devil to just punch us in the mouth and let our teeth fall where they may. I genuinely believe in my heart that our, our, our life in the kingdom of God, our vitality in the kingdom of God is dependent upon our willingness to fight against the lies and oppression of the enemy with the truth of the gospel. It's why the Bible says, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. This is a word from God. Feed yourself on it. Take it in. I wonder if you would uh, imagine a time with me where we as a body, where we as the church at Lockland Springs lived and embodied the kingdom in this way. I wonder what our neighborhoods might look like. I wonder what our neighborhoods might sound like. I wonder what our work circles, our work conversations might sound like if we gave ourselves over to this. If I can go one more step further. I wonder what our homes would sound like. I wonder what our relationships with our parents or our spouses or our kids or our siblings, what those might feel like if we fully bought in to this kingdom. A couple of years ago, my wife, Mary, and I had the opportunity to go to Israel. We were there for about 10, 12 days, and at one point in our trip, we reached the Dead Sea. If you aren't familiar with this sea, it is very well named because nothing can live in it. The salt concentration is so dense that no vegetation, no animals can live in the sea. If you were to go take a good amount of drink of that water, you're not going to do too well, uh, so don't do that. But at this point in our trip, we spent some time at the Dead Sea, and we began to hike up into a mountainous region. And we begin to hike through what are called wadis. And wadis are simply dry riverbeds. It's the, it's the region that David was fleeing from Saul in the book of Psalms. This is the region that he, that he ran through. And as we hike through these, these wadis, we reached a point where we came up and we came down. And at the base of this particular wadi was a waterfall. And it, it was gushing and, and streaming as waterfalls tend to do. And it was pulling up at the bottom. It's probably eight, nine, ten feet deep. In our group, there was probably 35 of us. We sat on the edge of the water. And our guide began to teach us. And he read to us from the book of Ezekiel. And in Ezekiel, God gives the prophet a particular vision of a time in the future where the temple of God sits atop a mountain. And living water flows from this temple. Living water, biblically, all that means is that it's water that moves. It's water that's not stagnant. It has life. And as this living water flows down this mountain, everything it touches comes to life. Trees flourish, vegetation sprouts, and eventually this water that flows from the temple makes its way into the Dead Sea. And the prophecy says the Dead Sea comes to life. And as our guide was giving us this picture, he slowly began to walk his way back into the water until he was about chest deep. At that point, he extended an invitation to us. He'd been with us for days. He knew that we had literally just hiked across the wilderness. He knew we were tired. He knew we were thirsty. And he knew what we needed was right in front of us. So he extended an invitation. And I'll never forget that moment because it was so palpable. Like you could reach out and touch it. Like I'm sitting, I'm looking at the guy next to me, saying, I'm not going to be the first one to go, you go. And then quite literally out of nowhere, an elderly man from behind us, probably 75, 80 years old, just came sprinting down the middle of these 25 year olds, hooping, hollering as 75, 80-year-old men do. And he just dove straight in the water. Now, at that point, we're all on our feet because we know what has to happen next. And as I was reflecting with my wife on this moment, she was sharing with me her kind of thought process and what it looked like. And as she kind of started to stand up and was on the edge of her seat, she began to think things like this. I got to take my shoes off. I got to take my socks off. There's like 10 feet of rocks I've got to walk over. That's going to hurt. I've got this big backpack that has literally all my possessions while I'm in a foreign country. There's 30 of us. I don't want things to get lost. Oh, I didn't bring dry clothes. I'm going to be sopping wet all day. I don't want to do all this work. I wonder how many of us are in that particular space today where we know what we need, or at least we have maybe an idea. We've been given an invitation And it's it's right there. It's right in front of us. And yet we're trying to keep one foot on the land, all the while stretching and dipping one foot in the water. And we're asking ourselves and we're asking God why our hearts and our souls feel so dry. Like, why do I feel so tired? I'm going to take the liberty as the discipleship minister to ask you, what would it look like if you joined a small group? hear me say this, I know what that requires. I know it's difficult. It takes work. There's a bit of awkwardness at times. I know what it requires, but I also know this, it is worth it. If you're in a small group, what would it look like for you to give yourself over, to surrender yourself to the people that God has uniquely placed you among and give yourself over to them in faithfulness and in love? What would it look like for us as a congregation to take part in the new initiative that starts next Sunday night that we're calling The Table, where we gather in the commons on a monthly basis and we eat together, we pray together, we read scripture together, and we quite literally sit in the tension of the sacred and the ordinary. And we allow God to do his work. Jesus' message when he began his, his ministry was not some illustrious kind of rant. It was very simple. Jesus began his ministry, and he said, repent, turn away from, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the kingdom that he's talking about, where redeemed people live surrendered to God's word and in faithful service to one another. That kingdom is here. The question for us this morning is, are we living in it? So what we're going to do now is we're going to move into our prayer and altar time. So what I'd ask you to do is uh, just get yourself comfortable. If that's in your seats or at the altar, uh, just posture yourself in a way that you can approach the Lord. And then if you would oblige me, would you mind just kind of closing your eyes, bowing your heads? Just kind of take the moment for you. Would you just ask the Lord this? Would you, just, would you ask the Lord to show you what it is that might be holding you back this morning? Ask the Lord to bring something to your mind to show you what it is that that might have you afraid, that might have you in that same spot. I'm going to have to do so much to receive this. Would you ask the Lord this morning to show you something that you might need to let go of. And would you ask the Lord to give you courage? Give you courage to to reach out, to ask for help. It's one of the bravest things you can do. God, I love this church. I love these people. And we love you. We ask, Spirit, that you would move in our midst, that you would constantly be showing us things that we need to let go of, things we need to move towards. And would you give us the boldness to do so? Would you give the people around us the gentleness to encourage us to move forward? would you continually help us realize the glory of your kingdom the glory of ordinary small things that you use for extraordinary ways God without you we are simply a group of warm bodies huddled in a room and yet you have filled this room with power and purpose and you've given us your holy word to feed our souls and our hearts with I pray that we as a people would do that together this in Jesus' name. Amen.